this back in January, that uh, we were going to go up through verse 20. And we were, this semester was going to carry us up through because the argument does not end. Um, uh, the argument that Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1, does not end um, at the end of chapter 2. It, it continues. So let me, let me try to give us a running start as to where we are and where we're headed. Um, keep your finger in chapter 3 and turn over with me to chapter 1 again. And let me show you the universal statement that Paul makes, the sweeping statement that he makes in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now that's the, that's the truth, or that is a truth that he is, um, he is just taught, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And then he goes on for the rest of chapter 1, to, to demonstrate and prove to you that that is true in the case of the Gentiles. That, that this sweeping statement of condemnation that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness includes the Gentiles. Then we come to chapter 2. And it's there in chapter 2 that Paul seeks to prove um, that the Jew is also included in that sweeping statement of 118. Though he is a Jew, and that's very special, yes, and though he is circumcised, yes, that's very special too. Uh, he happens to be one of God's chosen people and all that. He is just as much under the wrath of God as is the Gentile. And that is what he seeks to, pr to prove in chapter 2, in the entirety of chapter 2. And maybe you've gotten... Uh, downright bored at listening to the numerous ways that he tries to teach you that, but that's the point. And I told you as we started chapter 2 that you're going to hear it again and again and again. He's going to try and convince a Jewish audience that they should place themselves in that audience that Paul mentions in um, Romans 1.18. Now we come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, chapter 3 can be broken up in pretty easily uh, and pretty, um, uh, pretty, pretty, I mean, it's easy to see, I think, um, into three sections. Uh, you have verses 1 through 8, and that's what we're going to look at tonight, but verses 1 through 8, and in that section, he discusses a difficulty that, uh, that he recognizes in his argument uh, as to what he's been saying in chapter 2. That is, he, he, he foresees that there is going to be an, uh, a question in the minds of his audience, and so he's about to address it in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 20, um, he gives you a series of Old Testament quotations to prove his point. And to a Jewish audience, ladies and gentlemen, nothing would, more be, nothing would be more effectual uh, or effective um, than Old Testament quotations. No more effective argumentation could come for a Jewish audience then quoting Old Testament scripture, and that's what he does in verses 9 through 20, and that's where we'll stop, and that is this semester. In fact, what I'm going to do, I don't know whether you uh, <clears throat> care about this, but we're going we're to finish up uh, through verse 20 in the next three weeks, and then I'm going to set aside a week, uh, the 24th of May. Actually, I'm doing it for a lot of reasons, but um, there, is a, there is a passage in Mark on eschatology. Now, you know what eschatology is? That's the study of last things. And all of you who are so carried away with the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, 
please don't miss that night. Um, I, I just felt like I needed to address it, and I wanted to do it, and I'm going to do it on a Wednesday night. Um, but so we're going to have to hurry through the first 20 verses of Romans 3 so that we can have the 24th to do something on eschatology, and we'll hope to address some of the, your issues there. But the, the, the point is, um, when he gets to verse 21, and verses 21 through 31, I want you to see this, because this is pretty, easily, this is pretty easy to demonstrate. In verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul returns to his theme of chapter 1. Now put your finger in, in Romans 3 and then find chapter 1 again. <clears throat> I want you to notice the similarities between 117 and 321. Watch. Look at 117. For in it, that is the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then, he, then he, uh, he goes off on a tangent to prove a point about Gentiles and Jews. And then he tries to answer every objection, prove it with Old Testament quotes, and then he returns to that. Look at 21, 321. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, over here, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. You see, <clears throat> he, he makes his statement in 117. He takes a side road to prove a point. He uh, answers an objection, proves it with Old Testament quotes, and now he's back to it. He's back to the theme of 117. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I can't wait to get there. We won't get there until the fall, but I can't wait to get there. Because there is... There's very few passages in the Bible that are as rich and full of theological, doctrinal, gospel content than Romans chapter 3 and following, or 3.21 and following. What Paul has done has come full circle, and we're going to get back to the other end of that circle in the fall. But he is setting forth this glorious gospel, <clears throat> the gospel that declares the righteousness of God in, in Jesus Christ. There's a term that I've used, and you've heard me use it a lot, it's called classicus locus. It's just a Latin term that means the classic text. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is no more classic text concerning the doctrine of justification by faith alone than that which commences in verse 21 of chapter 3. But we're not there yet, because we have spent a long time, Paul, just making sure that his audience knew that everyone was included, including Jew. <coughs> Pardon me. Which gives me pause to, or, or, or at least an excuse to say a couple of things. Um, I found it very interesting, and you may not, but I, I, it was of interest to me that Paul takes such a long time before he is ready to announce, and, and, and in all of its fullness, this this grand and glorious news. It takes him a long time before he gets to all the goodies, you know, all the positives. And, and my point is, ladies and gentlemen, in the 21st century, people today don't seem to want to take the time to do the essential foundational work. Um, we, we hasten over the part about sin so that we can make sure that people understand that um, um, you can go to heaven. 
pole doesn't make that mistake. <clears throat> um, you know, gang, before you can ever get to the New Testament, you're supposed to wade through the old. Um, because there is a message that must be heard. And Paul works that argument out indefatigably. He goes painstakingly to make sure that once he gets to the good news, people know it's good news because they know the issue, uh, the issues that they're confronting. He takes his time laying the, work, the groundwork before he announces and proclaims the glorious gospel. I, to me, gang, that is a condemnation on 20th, 21st century evangelism in and of itself. Because we want to make sure that we're not losing our audience, so we've got to hurry up and give them the goodies. So Paul doesn't make that argument. I'll tell you another thing that he does, which I thought is, should be exemplary for us. It's interesting that Paul is eager to answer their objections. You know, the staff uh, has a retreat uh, in May, the 11th and 12th of May, and I assign a book every year. Uh, we're all supposed to read a book together, and then we go off on the, a, Friday, a Thursday night and a Friday, and we do a lot of things, but we discuss the book. And, and um, um, the book that we're discussing, I, I thought, was wonderful. But one of the, the points that the author makes is, in terms of our reaching our community, our reaching our culture, that one of the things that we must, well, he says one of the things that we got to do is be a community. <clears throat> I'll tell you another thing. I don't know if this brother's in here or not. Brown glasses. <laughs> this, this brother's in here. <clears throat> just, just, I, I'm off on a tangent. I had a man walk up to me tonight and he said, um, uh, I heard about Jeff. He said, um, whatever we have to do to help that woman, let's do it. He said, um, I'll take care of her grass. I'll get a group of men, and we will make sure that she's fine. Brisbane man. But my point is, guys, that's community. And this author is saying that if the church is ever going to reach the world, we have to be a community. And guys, the church, there's nothing more beautiful than the church of Jesus Christ when she's functioning rightly. Nothing's more beautiful. Nothing is more beautiful. Nothing's uglier <laughs> when she's not functioning rightly. Um, I, I, I'm into a, I heard about another church squabble today. I, you know, I just, I was talking to Tom Jordan and I was telling him, oh, well, it's just another church squabble. And, I, and, and I, there's nothing uglier, but there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful when the church of Jesus Christ decides we're going to be the church. But anyway, that's one of the things this author says. But he, the other thing he says is, if we're going to reach this culture, we must develop an apologetic. That is, we must know how to answer their objections. We must. We've got to answer their questions. And guys, Paul does that. He's very concerned that their questions be answered. And <clears throat> that's a long way to say, let's go back to verse 1 and see. But that's what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 8. One, one through eight. Let me read you that real quick. Hmm, actually, we only have 20 minutes left. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, um, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, you, uh, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Okay, uh, let me just stop there just for the interest of time because all we're going to really cover is verses 1 and 2 anyway. 
What advantage then has the Jew or what profit or what is the profit of circumcision? Do you see the objection that Paul is trying to address? Paul is thinking, okay, I've just proved that the Jews are included in this sweeping condemnation that all are under the wrath of God. And so my audience is out there thinking, well, wait a minute, Paul, you've gone too far. You've gone just a little bit too far. I, I, Paul, if you're right, it seems that what you're saying is there's absolutely no advantage whatsoever to being a Jew. None. I mean, um, um, God carved this nation out of Egypt, brought us all the way through all that business in the 40-year in the, the wilderness, and then overturned all the Hittites and all that business, and, and, and created this wonderful nation, and then, <clears throat> and then gave us circumcision as an identity mark as, uh, of the people of God. And what you're saying, Paul, if you're right, that was all a waste of time. And I'll tell you this, Paul, not only that, that means the whole Old Testament means nothing. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? You see, he is answering a question in the minds of his audience before they ask it. That's always called an ad hominem argument. He, um, he precludes their question by answering it before they ask it. They're saying, well, my golly, Paul, you know, I hear what you're saying. Well, then there's just no advantage of being a Jew at all. And Paul says in verse 2, they ask, what's the advantage? And he says, much in every way. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, Paul never said in his old argument of chapter 2 that there was no advantage uh, of being a Jew. That is an entirely false deduction from his argument. He never said that. But being a Jew will not advantage anyone when he stands before God. Are there advantages? Oh, yes. Um, it, it, let me put it like this. Is there an advantage of being raised in a Christian home? Oh, man, yeah. Let me tell you guys, <clears throat> when I hear men, <clears throat> when I hear men like Alistair Begg, who says at age 10 he was listening to the preaching of Eric Alexander. By the way, we're close to having, you may not know Eric Alexander, but you will if we get him. We're close to getting him. Um, next November or the next, I forget. But Alistair Begg was listening to the preaching of, Alistair, uh, of Eric Alexander at age 10, and I think, gosh, I wish I could have done that. I wish I had gone through high school and college as a believer. I wouldn't have some of the problems I got today if I did. Is there an advantage of being raised in a Christian home? You bet. But when you stand before God, Will you be able to plead, oh, well, God, the reason that you should let me in is because I was raised in a Christian home. No, ladies and gentlemen. Are there advantages? Sure, all kinds of advantages. But the experience of being a Jew, the experience of being raised um, in a Christian home is in no way magic. I, I said that two weeks ago. There is no transmittable grace in, in a, being raised in a Christian home or being a Jew or in a sacrament. Remember the term I use, ex opera operato? They don't work in and of themselves. Is there advantage of being a Jew? Yeah, there is. But it's not in and of itself going to save you. But look at verse 2. Um, is there advantage? Sure there's an advantage. Chiefly, and by the way, the, um, the, uh, the Greek word there is proton, which literally should be translated first, 
But if he's got a first, you would think he'd have a second and a third, and there's no second and third. So uh, the, the translators, I think, translated it wisely by saying, chiefly, you want to know your advantages? I'll tell you your advantages. Chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Um, <clears throat> gang, the, the, the term translated oracles is a term logia. The normal word for the normal Greek word for uh, word is logos. It is in the same cognate family, but it has a different shade of meaning. It it means utterance or revelation or pronouncement, and they've translated it well here. That is, you want to know the advantage of the Jew? I'll tell you, because it was to them who was com they were committed the oracles of God. Now, gang, I've got a lot to say about that. So hang with me. But first of all, you must see that here is a New Testament statement about the veracity and um, uh, validity and usefulness of the Old Testament. Because that's what Paul is referring to. What did the Jews get committed? They got committed the Old Testament. That wasn't what was entrusted to them. And Paul says, I'll tell you what was an advantage. You got entrusted the Old Testament. That's a great advantage. But the other thing that you need to see is that God has revealed truth propositionally. What is the great advantage? You have got the logia. You've got the pronouncements. You've got the, the, the utterances of God reduced to print. Black words on a white page. Man, man, what a, what a, what a fortunate people you are that you had committed to you? The mind of God reduced to black words on a white page. Now, gang, stay with me. If Paul was going to list the advantages that a Jew had, do you know how many things he had at his disposal? Um, <clears throat> what about the parting of the Red Sea? I'll tell you how you were advantage. <laughs> God parted the Red Sea for you fellas. What about manna? Um, boy, that was something. Walking around for 40 years, eating off the ground. Um, what about Jericho? You know, those walls falling down with an army walking around it. Joshua at the battle of Jericho. I mean, you Jews were advantaged because you had Jericho. You Jews were advantaged because you had the Red Sea experience. You walk right through there and the Egyptian army got killed in that whole thing. You, he could have chosen any number of things. But what was it in the mind of the Apostle Paul that made these people advantaged? They had committed to them the oracles of God. Again, there is no higher privilege than to be spoken to by God. Nothing is as valuable as being spoken to by the living God. Which means, conversely, that there has never been a greater loss, or there will never be a greater loss, than for God to stop talking. Gang, <clears throat> keep your fingers there, and turn with me if you can find this real quickly, because you need to see this. This is in Amos. It's one of the minor prophets, and, and it's right before Jonah. <clears throat> minor prophets are hard because they're, you know, some of them are only one chapter. 
But see if you can find Amos chapter 8. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread. Oh, no, that'd be simple. Not a famine of thirst for water. <laughs> no, that's easy. But I'm going to send a famine one day, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Gang, if there is no greater privilege than having God speak to you, nothing could be a greater loss than to have him stop speaking to you. He, you know, he didn't speak to anybody else. He committed those oracles to Jews. He committed them <clears throat> to, to the nation of Israel. The Assyrians? No, 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 no. They didn't get spoken to. They got left in the dark. Man left to himself, to his own invention. You know, gang, um, we ought to panic. Absolutely panic. If we sense that God is not talking to us anymore. If I hadn't heard something from God, if I hadn't heard God talking to me. No other nation has had that advantage. I mean, like the Jews had it. But the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Hittites, no, they were left to wander on in their own darkness. But God in his kindness spoke to you. Guys, see if you can find Deuteronomy real quick. Fifth book of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 8. Listen to this. This is so, this is rich. And we're going to look at chapter 32 in that same book, Deuteronomy 8 and 32. Deuteronomy 8, let me just read verse 3. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There could never be a greater loss than when God stops talking to you. Find chapter 32 real quick. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Deuteronomy 32. Let me begin reading in verse 44. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. <clears throat> Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, here we go, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. Tell those people to set their minds and hearts on the words of God, because it is their life. Paul says, oh, there's advantages of being a Jew. And the foremost advantage is that you were committed, to, to you was, were committed, the oracles of God. No higher privilege 
could a man ever experience than to be spoken to by God? And no greater loss is when he stops talking. Gang, I'm telling you, this culture of ours is close to that day. I, I'm not a prophet nor a son of one, and I wouldn't dream of saying some of the foolishness that I hear in television about when Jesus is coming, but I'm telling you, when God withdraws his words from a culture. <clears throat> it was in those words that he spoke to Israel, that he hinted, that he, that he promised. It's in Deuteronomy 18, by the way. He, he promised a Messiah. He promised them hope that a Messiah would come and deliver them. And they, in turn, were to make these, no these words known to every nation around them. No higher privilege than being a spokesman for this God. Gang, <clears throat> got four minutes. Do you realize the privilege of what lies in your lap right this minute? Do you know the privilege of an open Bible and being taught it? You know, I, I, I'm reading article after article after article that this thing needs to be set aside and somewhat minimized because the greatest way that we can enter in the presence of God is singing some kind of chant. Not according to Paul. The greatest privilege that Israel got was that she had this book. This is no ordinary book, ladies and gentlemen, and it's not to be studied academically so that we can store up more Bible facts. This book was entrusted to entrusted to keep it and guard it and, and defend it. You know, have you read about the Episcopalians and the Lutherans? They're going to merge. You know, there is a, there is a, there is a movement in, in, I guess, religion today for uh, an ecumenical trying to get everybody back together. And, you know, there's a sense in which I'm sure that's good. There's a, there's a huge outcry. Um, from those in Lutheran and Episcopal churches saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But you know, guys, every church division, every church split is ugly. There's nothing pretty about them. But you know what? On some occasions, I'm glad. Because truth means something. And if I'm not willing to fight over the truth, then what am I willing to fight over? I want to show you one verse and we'll quit. See if you can find the book right before Revelation. <clears throat> it's the book of Jude. Next to the last book of the Bible. Let me read you a quick verse and we'll close up. Beloved, I mean Jude, it's, it's only one chapter, so it's Jude 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning your, our common salvation, <clears throat> I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
Gang, I looked up that word this afternoon. It's really a complex word. The word contend, <clears throat> it's the word agonizomai. You can figure what English word we got out of that. And it has a little prefix in front of it, epi, which means it does nothing more than intensify the word. As if agonizing is not intense enough. But Jude says, I want you to hyper-agonize over the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I've given you this thing and I want you to guard it and tend it and protect it and proclaim it because there could never be a greater privilege to men than to have God speak. no greater loss than to have him stop speaking to you. If you're in the choir or in meetings, it's time to be dismissed. Wasn't that choir wonderful Sunday morning? <clears throat> I'm sorry, y'all. Let's pray. Oh, God, um, we are people who love this book. We are people who know just a little bit about its value. We, we understand how important it is to know the mind of God and not to know the latest stock quotes. Uh, Father, I, I think we, we spend more energetic involvement in the sports page, hearing from Jeff Calkins than we do hearing from the living God. Oh, how privileged we are to have in our hands this which gives us insight to the mind of our Heavenly Father. Oh God, we beg you don't ever stop talking to us. Take away our meal time. Take away our donuts and coffee and our bookstore and our women's retreat. Take away the men's ministry, but oh God, don't stop talking to us. We'll give up anything for it. But we beg you in the name of Jesus, don't stop talking to us. We ask it of course, in Jesus' name. <clears throat>